there's a whole conversation out there about how indigenous thinking can can change the world and save humanity from climate change and you know maybe holds a lot of the answers but for me it's that understanding of coming into a relationship with things from a different place hi everyone and welcome back to another episode of Eliminal space um, this is actually episode number 10 which is the first small milestone so I just wanted to take a quick second to say thanks to everybody that's supported what I'm doing and my vision so far so if you've been watching on, on YouTube, um, thanks for watching and sharing. Please feel free to subscribe and hit the bell button below to be notified of all new episodes. And if you're listening, um, please feel free to rate it. And if you think it's worth five stars, that would be, that would be amazing. So today I'm in discussion with Hiniani Tunoa Roberts. Hi, Hiniani. Hi, David. Nice to have you here. Thanks for having me. Very nice to come and talk with you. That's a pleasure. Um, I wanted to do something a little bit different in the introduction today. Normally, I introduce the guest, um, but I know that what we're going to be talking about today is really um, based around who you are and your identity and, and how you'll see yourself in the world. So it was uh, sort of felt more appropriate maybe if you could introduce yourself. Well, there's different ways of me introducing myself, <laughs> I guess. Um, so, uh, my name is Hiniani and I'm a media artist and run um, a design media art studio here in Melbourne. And I work in um, kind of cultural education and community art facilitation as well, I'm kind of moving more into that space. And I have a personal practice as well um, with my art, which involves a bit of a mashup between modern design, modern printmaking, and some kind of traditional elements from my cultural background. Um, so I guess if I was at a party with someone and they said, oh, hi, who are you? I'm meeting you for the first time. What do you do? That's, the gen that's generally the answer that I give people. Um, I also um, have a Maori background. So in the Maori world, I would introduce myself, uh, first of all, with um, where I'm, it's a land-based introduction. So I would say, you know, my, um, ko, ko Manawari, Tamuna, ko, uh, te Arai, Te Aura. So my mountain is Manawaru, my river is Te Arai. My people are Bongo Fakata from Tairawhiti on the east coast of New Zealand. Um, my hapu is Nati Kaipoho and um, I'm Hiniani. So the last thing I would tell you would be my name. Yeah, and the first thing I would tell you is um, the land that I'm associated with and the group of people that I come from. So they're my introductions. <laughs> wow, that's beautiful. I mean, yeah, um, it's, it's, it's worked out perfectly, allowing me to, to introduce yourself. So my understanding is you have um, Australian and uh, Maori parents? Yeah. Yeah, so my mother's Australian. Um, and so she was born in a private hospital in Paddington. She's like fourth generation white settler, Australian, mostly from an English background and a little bit of Scottish. Uh, and my father is a Maori man. He also has some Scottish in his, in his whakapapa, which is the Maori word for genealogy. Um, 
Yeah, so I've got a lot of Scottish in me as well. <laughs> yeah, uh, he came over to Australia when I was very young. Um, so I've spent most of my life growing up in Australia, but as as a Maori person, which is an interesting combination. Um, kind of living very much. I was raised with these two worldviews: my mother's worldview and then my father's indigenous worldview. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm sure there's been some struggles that you may have faced having these two identities in some way, but I also believe that it it gives potentially um, a really interesting insight into to how you see the world because, um, well, let me ask you, I mean, has this identity really shaped or how has this identity shaped your your worldview? Yeah, that's the question, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it, it's, it, I think it colours everything that I do and see. It's, I, you know, for a long time, th there's a lot of differences between my mother's and my father's culture. And um, I was raised primarily by my father. My father was my primary caregiver um, until I was about 12. So I think um, that's po possibly why the, his Maori tanga or his Maori culture had such a big impact on me. I feel like the, my first worldview is a Maori worldview, actually, even though I grew up in Australia, in, in normal kind of suburban Sydney, Australia. Um, but I, I grew up um, fishing on the beach and in the garden with him. And I didn't learn to read or write till I was 14, which is a really interesting experience, um, which is a big part of that story for me. And I was diagnosed with dyslexia, but also I think my father actually didn't really have super strong literacy skills. You know, he came from a very, an oral culture um, where my mother was very word orientated. Um, and so I guess written language wasn't so important and it, it, it just, I, you know, I was, kind of, I was raised on oral stories. I was raised um, on information that was passed down through storytelling. So I, I think that actually really shaped my brain. <laughs> Um, and there are studies, there's actually, uh, yeah, it's just, there's a lot of studies on how reading and writing actually changes your brain and mm. cultures that are kind of orally based. Although, I mean, it's kind of a crazy thing to say that, you know, I grew up in the kind of early 80s, late 70s. So it's a crazy thing to be talking about now because um, Maori culture is not an oral culture anymore predominantly. Um, but, yeah, so I, I guess that's an unusual experience which definitely shaped the way I saw the world. So for a long time, words were just these really interesting black and white shapes for me, letters. I think, you know, they just were, were patterns because they didn't have any meaning for me. And I, I really remember that really strongly because I was so much older when I actually learned to read. Um, yeah, my mother's worldview was, you know, I guess a very sort of English Christian-based worldview. Um, and, you know, it was an, in, I think the differences, uh, you know, that hers was very individualistic and my father's was very, a, a collective worldview. Um, hers was very, very word orientated. She was actually a librarian and a school teacher. So she was very word orientated, um, where my father's worldview was, um, yeah, he, very oral. He didn't actually ever teach me anything. I probably learnt thousands of things from my father, but he didn't ever sit me down and teach me anything. I learned just by being at his foot and following him around and 
um, and doing with him where my mother was very instructional. You know, she was a school teacher and she would actually teach you things. Um, so it was a very different way of learning between the two of them. And um, the other main difference I think that's really affected me is, yeah, my mother's world was very task orientated and my father's world um, was relationship orientated. Mm. Yeah, so, you know, um, and, and that, that relationship is not just around people, but relationship to everything. So he, he entered everything he did, you know, in, in, in Te Ao Māori, in the Māori world, um, there's this concept that everything has a mori, everything has, has an essence. You know, our house does, um, the dog, you know, even inanimate objects. Um, and so we come into relationship with everything that we interact with. And so in, in a Māori way, you would, his way, his way um, would be, you know, there was a, a care of things that was quite different. And not that my mother wasn't caring of things at all, but sense of ownership and his sense of responsibility to other things was quite different because it was, it was all about his relationship to that thing. That word essence, it's a, it's a, a beautiful word. It's a fascinating word. When I heard it from your mouth now, I, I started to think, does that mean that these objects or, or objects, here is my Western world coming into play again, I'm referring to them as objects, but does it, does it mean that perhaps they're alive or they're conscious or they are, have an awareness about them? Is, is this something that, that am I touching on? Um, I'm not sure it would be described like that as a consciousness, but it, I guess the mode of things is definitely something that strengthens the more you, you look after it and care for it. Um, so something that has really strong motory would be something, like it might even be a, a punamu or a, a, a tonga um, that's passed down and it's worn by many generations and it grows. The motory of it, the strength, the manner of it kind of grows because it's been cared for and it's taken on the... the um, the energy of those people that have worn it or the people that have cared for it. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> no, that's a, that's a beautiful way. That's a beautiful way of putting it. Um, yeah. Maori spirituality is, is complex and I'm, you know, I'm definitely not an expert on, 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 on that. Um, that's my understanding. And from your, your father's influence and your mother's, were they individual influences in the sense that, um, the way that you were brought up by your father, is that a, a, a common Maori way of, of, of bringing people up or your, your father had this particular um, way oh, of yeah, living in the world? Mm. Um, I, I think it probably was. I think definitely in the Maori world, men have, have play a strong role in caretaking. There's definitely, um, you know, it's, it's, it's quite uncommon, I think, in... A white Australia to be raised by your father, perhaps, um, as a young child. Um, maybe only if you're, something bad had happened to your mother, if your mother had died or was unwell or, or not available somehow, you know. Um, we're definitely, yeah, I think, I think it's definitely more common um, that men play sort of nurturing roles with their children and their grandchildren. Yeah, and, and I think... Um, I think that way of being in the world and with 
with the world. Yeah, I think my father was very Maori in that regard. Yeah. And did you have any conflicts as a child in these two worldviews? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? Growing up in this in these two worlds and trying to reconcile that. I think for for a really long time, I had this kind of cultural dysphoria, um, which is what I call it. You know, and um, yeah, for a long time, you know, people would say, "Oh, where are you from?" And I'd say, "Oh, I'm Australian," and they go, "Oh, you don't look Australian." You'd say, "Oh, I'm Maori," and they go, "Oh, you're not fat enough to be Maori." You know, <laughs> I tell that story, but so I ended up not saying anything um, for a long time because I didn't kind of know where I fitted. And um, neither answer seemed to be acceptable to anyone. So (laughs) it's sort of a question that I would dodge for a long time. Um, And also growing up in Australia as a Maori has has a layer itself because, you know, there's a a lot of Maori people in Australia that kind of feel like if you're Maori outside of New Zealand, you're not proper Maori either, you know. And um, so, so that had a whole layer of reconciling it in itself. But it would play out with things like, for example, um, you know, my father would pick puha. Puha is like a green that grows wild um, and we put it in soup. It's really, you know, it's like a super food and, it, you know, you'd say like, you know, puha's like, you know, it makes you strong and mighty. And he'd just go and collect it from the, the street verge and, or, you know, the weeds in the ditch wherever it was growing, you know. And my mother would say, I can't believe you're picking weeds out of somebody else's yard. <laughs> it's really like an English response. So they had um, this, yeah, there was a lot of um, strangeness. You know, one day I would be barefoot running on the beach fishing and the next day I would be dressed up going to visit, you know, our Australian family where we'd have to sit very quietly and, you know, children were kind of very much seen and not heard and we'd have to sit quietly in these kind of prickly uncomfortable clothes and weren't allowed to move and play until the adults had finished talking and then maybe at the end of the long lunch we'd be able to go outside and pick flowers in the garden you know it was like kind of the world (laughs) yeah but um you know my mother um my mother registered my name in English as Anne Anne is the English translation of Hiniani and you know, she, she told me that, um, you know, it's you're half white and that's the most important half. So I understand why she did that. Um, yeah, I understand that she was wanting to make life easier for me. And if as a half-caste kind of native, the word was native back then, we didn't really, you know, when I grew up, I never heard the word indigenous. You know, we were called native kids. Um yeah, I think she was trying to protect me, you know, and if, if she could emphasise the white part of us and the Australian part of us, um, you know, that, that our, our world would be easier. But in doing that, you know, she, she, it created a lot of difficulty for me because I didn't feel able to safely express, you know, my, my Maori identity. And I look Maori, you know, I don't look Scottish. I have just as much Scottish, but I don't look Scottish. <laughs> Yeah, so, so that's kind of my childhood background. And, I mean, there are lots of gaps. Um, my father didn't have language. Um, he grew up in a New Zealand where, you know, kids were smacked at school for speaking Māori. Um, my grandma, Tui, grew up in a fluent-speaking house but um, at some point stopped speaking and didn't pass that on to my father. So, you know, there are gaps. There's lots of colonisation 
yeah, it has a massive impact and it's ongoing and it's definitely not, we don't live in a post-colonial world by any means. And, and I think the advantage of being the half-caste, I mean, I've kind of taken that word on um, to be a positive thing. It, it was such a disparaging word, you know, it was used, you know, the half-caste, so-and-so. Uh, but I'm kind of, I'm reclaiming that word because I actually think, you know, it does mean that I can navigate both worlds. I can speak on behalf of white settler Australians because that's in me as well. And I can also speak on behalf of my Indigenous colonised worldview. And so I've learned to navigate life now as, you know, I'm, I'm Australian, I'm Maori and I'm not half anything. I'm both those things. And, and I think there is advantage in being able to bridge those worlds. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you've, how it, it, there's also some small similarities in my own upbringing. Um, I'm a grandson of Italian migrants and in Australia, I growing up experienced a lot of racism and a lot of it was around this word wog. And then in my lifetime, I've seen it actually be reclaimed by Italians, by Greeks, by people that were, that were, that this word was used as an insult and actually re reclaim it in some way to empower, empower ourselves or, um, yeah. and so that was, I mean, it's a perfect sort of extended introduction. And the way that we got in contact yesterday was, um, on social media and, and, and we started discussing, uh, well, I heard for the very first time, colonial capitalism. And I wanted to start with your introduction because, you know, just jumping into colonial capitalism without knowing where you're coming <laughs> from um, may yeah. not have been so clear. So um, what's colonial capitalism? Yeah, I'm sort of surprised that uh, that word is not more familiar, really. Yeah, so <clears throat> this is my, my Fakara, my thinking around it. Um, colonialism is, a, is an ex is an expression and extension of, of capitalism. So, you know, in my thinking, you know, capitalism kind of peaked around, you know, sort of 18, 1800s, late 1700s, 1800s and into the sort of early 1900s, maybe up until, you know, the world wars. Um, that was kind of the peak of it in a way. And this is my view. This is totally just my personal view. You know, I'm not an academic scholar. I'm not an economist, but, you know, this is my thoughts. Um, and, you know, colonialism was European countries basically running out of resources. If you look at what the definition of capitalism is, which is the um, exploitation of resources for profit, capitalism is based on the theory of um, perpetual expansion or, or perpetual growth. Now, when you run out of resources in Europe, you go looking for other places and other lands. Um, and that's what colonisation is. Um, it was England going out, um, you know, deliberately seeking other lands in order to harvest the resources from those lands. Now, that's not a story around colonialism that we're comfortable with. And it's not a story that is taught to us in schools. Um, there's a document... A legal basis for this, which is called the Document of Discovery, which I'm only just learning about myself now, which was written like the late 1400s. And it's the legal basis for colonisation, basically that um, Christian countries had the authority of God um, to go and dominate over non-Christian lands. 
And you can Google the Doctrine of Discovery. There's heaps of information out there about that. And that law is, our, our law is still based, you know, in Australia and New Zealand and in a lot of colonised countries is still based on that Doctrine of Discovery. Um, yeah, so I think a really good example of colonial capitalism is Britain, Britain's 200-year occupation of India. Um, you know, India now we kind of regard as one of the poorest countries in the world. But for those 200 years that Britain uh, colonised India, they extracted $45 trillion of resources out of India. So why is India the poorest country in the world? Like colonisation was not about Captain Cook just floating around, you know, having a holiday on a boat in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and happening to chance upon these nice lands and thinking, hey, this would be a nice place, let's come and hang out here. You know, it, it, it was a deliberate policy around looking for more resources. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and that those resources were then stolen, in my view anyway, um, and in indi most Indigenous peoples' view, um, you know, without sovereignty and without consent, those resources were stolen from those, those peoples and those places for, for the purpose of profit and wealth. And your particular background, um, or as in um, uh, identity, your, your mother's background, your father's background, um, as well as being sort of like one foot on both sides of the fence, do you actually feel that you have one foot in the coloniser world and one foot in the colonised world? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, that, I mean it, it's, it actually dominates my life, actually. You know, like, and and I, didn't, I don't even necessarily realise to what extent until, you know, something will happen and I'll start to think about those things. But, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I am the coloniser and the colonised myself. And, like, a really good example of that, um, even just in my New Zealand um, history is, you know, my great-grandmother, Ani Rangi Tanoa, was living uh, kind of 1800s. Um, she was born early 1800s, um, just as New Zealand, you know, the peak, as New Zealand started to kind of really be um, colonised by English settlers. So um, she lived in a time when land was confiscated, uh, the Maori Wars, um, were breaking out over land and um, down on the east coast, and she um, kind of lived in this in this very unsettled time of displacement um, and unsettlement, as there were clashes between those those two worlds, you know, colonial New Zealand and the Maori world. At the same time, and you know, so she grew up um, in a place where our um, our marae, our carved meeting house, was stolen, <laughs> was packed up by, you know, uh, Colonel Briggs and one of the English um, authorities on a barge and shipped off with, with the intention to sell those carved panels back to England at the time. Um, and it, was, it never left New Zealand, thankfully, but it's still now in, in Te Papa Museum in Wellington, um, those artefacts. And that's the marae that my grandmother would have visited and gone to when she was a little girl, my great-grandma. Um, yeah, so I can't go back to New Zealand and visit. I have to go to Wellington to the museum to go to that marae. Um, and it, the ownership of it was only handed back 2017 to the Wongol people, um, to my iwi. So that's only two years ago that that, that stolen 
uh, carved house was actually handed back, but it's still in Wellington. Um, so when I go back to New Zealand and I go back to my grandmother's land and I go back to those to my ancestral homelands, you know, um, those stories are very real for me. Um, you know, it took us 20 years to get the land records from the Māori Land Court, for example, to even find out where my grandmother's land is. And there is still a lot of um, land claims that are not settled and there's still a lot of discomfort around that. Um, by the same token, um, at the same time, my other great-grandmother, my Scottish great-grandmother, whose name was Jane Roberts, and that's where the Roberts comes from, she came over from Aberdeen, Scotland with her husband and a couple of kids and they um, took up a, parcel, a freehold parcel of land in the Waikato. And uh, the story goes that she had 12 children. She, she birthed 12 children on her own in a farmhouse uh, with no family and no support. And um, there was the same, a lot of skirmish um, over land. And at night, um, her husband would go out and help the farmers in the area as they fought the Maori who were coming to take their land back. And she didn't know if his head was going to be on a spike in the pa in the morning. And they would lock, be locked in the house. So her and 12 children would be locked in the house um, while that happened. And, I mean, what a wahiri toa she was. I mean, that's the expression for a courageous woman. I mean, that Scottish woman, 12 kids on her own, locked in the house, you know, trying to protect her own modi of her family. Mm. Um, yeah, so both of these women are in me, you know, the, the settler and the colonised woman. And I guess when people say, hey, you're really strong, I go, oh, you got no idea, man. <laughs> like, <laughs> I got the strength of, you know, both of those cultures. Um, and then there's the story of being here on Australia and I'm a visitor here. I am Australia, you know, it's the only colonial country that does not have a treaty with its indigenous people. Um, so here I am, and you know, what am I here? <laughs> um, you know, I come from, from people who migrated to this country. Um, I'm, I'm invited into having, into relationship with this land and this place. And it seems that you have, and correct me if I'm wrong, but have you been on a personal discovery of um, finding out more about your, your Maori um, culture and um, bloodlines perhaps? And, and if that's the case, and tell me if it's not, why do you think that you have resonated so much and, and pursued that part of your identity and not perhaps the, the, the Scottish or the, the colonizer identity. Why is yeah. um, the colonized yeah. part yeah. of your life so, so strong for you? Yeah. And, and I wouldn't say that I've, I've always been in this place. I, I think probably people that would have known me 20 years ago, I, I definitely didn't have um, a strong um, um, a stronger Maori tonga as I have now. Maybe I did in different ways, but I, I definitely didn't express it. It wasn't safe necessarily to express it. That's, um, yeah, for a lot of my life, I didn't feel that it was safe to express my Maori identity. And, and that part of me was definitely smaller. And I'm, I'm sure there's lots of 
people that can relate to this. You know, there's lots of people I know that tell me they relate to that story. Um, it was easier to be Australian. It was easier to call myself Anne and not Hiniani. You know, when you introduce yourself, what's your name? Hiniani, what, what, what is it? Oh, Anne. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's easy. We get that. Um, and so, yeah, I, I've definitely been on a process of decolonizing myself in a way and decolonizing that story. Um, after my father died, my sister and I spent a lot of time trying to put together those missing pieces of, of his life and the unresolvedness around some of his story. And, and that took us on a massive journey of like 20 years long. Um, yeah, and, and at the same time, you know, I, as a little girl, I, you know, if someone said, what do you want to be when you grow up? I would, just, you know, I want to be a Maori. I want to be like my dad, you know. I wanted to, I felt cross that I didn't get to grow up in New Zealand like my elder sisters did and I was stuck here in Australia, you know. It's an interesting thing, you know. I mean, in some ways it's easier to, it's definitely easier to rest on the side of the coloniser than the, the colonized person and the colonizer, I think it's a much harder, well, it's a different story. I mean, there's a lot of lack of privilege in my family. You know, we didn't have, our family lands were confiscated. My father had no money, no inheritance, you know. Um, you know, if I look at, um, you know, even today, if I do a privilege walk, you know, that exercise where you take the steps, um, where they ask you questions, you know, I, I'll, I'll often end up at the back of that group of people. And, you know, I, I came home one day and, you know, um, after an exercise like that and said to my high school, you know, my teenage girl, hey, like, had this experience today. And she was like, yeah, we do that at school and I always end up at the back too. It's kind of interesting how there's this generational impoverishment that gets handed down um, when one culture takes all the wealth and resources. Can you explain that? I'm, I'm nodding my head, but I don't actually, I, I don't really know this privilege um, activity that, that you mentioned. Privilege walk. Yeah, privilege sure. Walk. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I did um, emerging cultural leadership mentorship at Fitzroy Community Arts Centre last year. And it was an awesome program. It's super um, recommended to anyone, any creative people to do. But part of it is um, about coming into leadership in your, in your cultural identity in a way. And so a privilege walk, you can also Google this. It's an exercise where basically a group of people, you all start in one row at the back of the room and a series of questions is read out. And every time you can answer yes, you take a step forward. So it might be things like, um, you know, did your parents pay your school fees for you? Um, did you have to work part-time as a child to support your family? Um, do you have access to the internet? Do you have a mobile phone? Do you own your own house? Do you rent? Um, you know, these kinds of questions. Uh, and it's really, it, it was quite confronting because I would have said before doing that exercise that I was a really privileged person. And I am. And, and it is contextual as well, obviously, to who else is in that room. Um, you know, I got, I got access to awesome education. I, lived, I live in this very safe uh, country where you know we have social security we don't go without um, food and 
you know, we have free access to health and, and that is all privilege. Um, but on the other hand as well, if I compare myself, you know, I'm a, I'm a single mum, I have four children, um, and it's a very Maori thing to have a big family, you know, which actually disadvantages me in this capitalist game. You know, capitalism doesn't reward um, me for having four children, you know, and being out of the workplace for 20 years while I raise those four children. You know, that is not, I'm not economically rewarded for that. Um, I don't own my own home, you know. Um, I live with my three, one of my children's an adult, three of my children still in a two-bedroom house. Um, you know, in crowded conditions. Um, and when, you know, a lot of Maori people are still really struggling with drug and alcohol abuse, family violence. I mean, I have those in my story as well. Um, incarceration rates, which are the highest in the world, the same as Australian. Um, you know, uh, these things impact us um, generationally. You know, when, when land is confiscated from my grandmother, that takes away her means to actually support herself with growing food or fishing or harvesting food. So what does she do? She has to do, you know, and a lot of the Maori people, and the same, a lot of Australian Indigenous people, exactly the same story. They, um, they then leave their rural areas and they go to urban centres they're not, they don't speak English necessarily, you know, they're not, they've not got the same level of, of education. So they get this, um, they get the low grade working class jobs. They work in the freezer works, in the factories, the low paid jobs. They end up living in the cheap slum areas. Um, you know, what, what colonial capitalism creates is a slave class of indigenous, indigenous and coloured people, which then build that, that colonial nation that they don't get a share of the wealth in that. I was listening the other day in, in one of my cultural education classes to, to people's stories and a, a lot of the women in that class were talking about coming over here on, on the 10 pound POM scheme, you know, where a million British people were encouraged to come to Australia. And New Zealand, New Zealand had the same scheme. They were able to access, you know, cheap fares, £10 to come here to migrate. And then they did have access to work, to uh, cheaper parcels of land, etc. Now, a lot of those stories were really hard. And a lot of these women were telling the stories of their ancestors coming here and how brave they were, how amazing they were to get on a boat um, and go to the other side of the, the planet, to the other, another hemisphere, so far away from their families and starting their life. And that's true. And I absolutely acknowledge um, for those people, um, for my own ancestors that did that, you know, like what an incredible thing for those people to do, for Jane Roberts to, to travel from Scotland to this unknown place uh, to set up a farm away from her own ancestral lands. But by the same token, um, there's another side of that story, and that is, you know, there's stories, for example, of people winning, European and English people in New Zealand, winning parcels of land in a running race, you know? And, like, our, our land was confiscated. It's 200 years. We still do not have access to that land. And yet English people were winning it in a running race. Well, they were given it like incredibly cheaply and, and so easily and effortlessly. They, they were passing out a freehold title of land. 
So, I mean, for me, that is colonial capitalism and that, and it's still, it still exists today, you know. Um, there is a, a massive class division between the colonizer and the, and the colonized. And it's, we don't talk about that. You know, we think it's something that happened 200 years ago. We're all over it now. But there is still a massive class, class division. If you look at the statistics, both in Australia and New Zealand, Indigenous people, you know, as you know, like, you know, life expectancies, 20, 30 years lower, um, health, education, access to income, incarceration rates, death in custody, all of those statistics, you know, there is definitely, you know, colonisation has created a slave class of people by deliberately cultural genocide. You know, we were the dying race. My father was told he was the dying race. There's no point in learning Māori, no good will come of it. You know, we're soothing the pillar of the dying races. And the faster you assimilate, the faster you marry a white woman and you breed out, hmm. yeah, um, that Māori, you know, the better off you'll be. And that was, and it's my mother's, you know, you're half white and that's the most important half. The, the more I still have had people tell me, you know, you're just making life harder for yourself by identifying with your Māori side. Just assimilate. Just why would you want to do that? You know, but there's this part of me that's also like, well, we're, I'm, not, we're, I'm not dead yet. You know, the Maori's not actually bred out of us yet. I'm still here for my grandmother, my great, you know, for my ancestors. I'm still here. I'm still speaking Maori and I'm still, you know. That is a difficult story. And for many years, I was not safe to express my Maori identity. And there is still a lot of dysfunction in my family around this. I have a sister who um, got very teased at school. Uh, she got called Blackie and Cockroach. She, won't, she does not identify as Māori. If you ask her, she, she looks way more Māori than me if there's such a thing as what a Māori is supposed to look like. But she will tell you she's Australian. Hmm. So, um, you know, there is pain and discomfort in that story. But by the same token, there is pain and discomfort in the, in the settler story which hasn't even begun to be unpacked yet in, in some ways, you know. There is a lot of discomfort in, in, in my settler ancestry around being the ones uh, that perpetrated that imbalance of power. Yeah. And so both of those things, you know, I, I have to reconcile both of those things within myself. Well, thank you for giving me this opportunity <laughs> for this chat and for... It's, it's, it's very interesting. I mean, so many of these things, are, are, there are thousands of, of discussion points just from, from there, um, but it's, it's, it's wonderful. And what I'd like to do is, well, no, two things. First, just respond this, this idea of privilege. Uh, the way I see it is that it's often too easy for the privileged, of which I definitely am. I, I pretty much tick so many of those boxes. I mean, I'm healthy, I'm educated, I've got two passports, I'm white, and dare I say it, I'm a male. In a global context, those things put together make me a very powerful person. I'm privileged, but I didn't do anything to get that privilege, or um, these are just the role of the dice and, and, and the way it was rolled, rolled for me. But the way that I understand privilege is that 
and, and, and disadvantage, I would say that perhaps disadvantage is the opposite of, of, of privilege, um, is that just very slight privileges and very slight disadvantages compounded on top of each other are what actually creates this huge gap. I mean, if I have access to things and someone does, if I have access to education and someone doesn't have access to that same education, I have already that the gap exists, but I can use that education to further increase that gap. Whereas if I didn't have that education, I may not be really aware or have the tools to know how to how to uh, you know bring that that gap closer. So over time, those 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 privileges or lack thereof sort of compound and, and the gap gets bigger is the way, the way that I see it. Um, yeah. And almost by definition, capitalism for me is exactly this. If I have a dollar in my pocket, it means that I can do something with that dollar. I can invest it. I can to try to make it $2. Of course, I can lose that dollar. But if I don't have that dollar in the first place, I don't have any way to move forward or to to work towards you know improving um our situation so what i'd like to do is to bring the chat to to the current to the present to to hear you know what we can do through your own lens of the of the world um moving forward in the sense so what i haven't done in any of these discussions is actually explain the name of this podcast. And I think this is a perfect opportunity to do that. So a liminal space is for me a really interesting concept. And it, it does traditionally come from an anthropological, um, it's an anthropological term. And it means, or let me give an example, in many, many cultures, many indigenous cultures, many tribal cultures, um, there's a period of transition um, or initiation a boy becomes a man, a girl becomes a woman. But what happens in that time between when you're no longer a boy and no longer a girl and you're not yet a man and not yet a woman? And this space is a liminal space. And unfortunately, I find that right at this moment, the world is in this liminal space. We don't really know what the future is going to is going to look like and and it, you know in the last six months more than ever the whole thing has been turned on its head and i'm hoping to have these sorts of discussions with people like yourself that think different i, I can't say think differently but just bring a different perspective to to their thought than the sort of the the more regular and, and mainstream narrative so um your relationship to to the world around us, to, to nature and to connection. How do you feel about, about this currently in the past and, and moving forward? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot over this COVID time is, um, you know, in our, in our, what I call, you know, a white Australian, and, and it is Christian value-based culture. We do think that humanity is the centre of the universe, you know, that we're, we're the most important thing and the universe revolves around us. Where in my Maori worldview, you know, 
um, we're just one player in a multi-connected web of the natural world. And there is no separation between people and, and the environment. There's a Fakatokia proverb in, in Te Ao Māori. It's really well known. You're ko o te awa, ko awa te o. I'm the river and the river is me. Ko o te mona, ko mona te o. I'm the mountain and the mountain is me. So there's no, they are my ancestor and my ancestors. There's no separation between me and them. I am, as a, as a, as a human, I am the consciousness of the natural world around me, of, of the environment. So when things like COVID come along, you know, my response is kind of, wow, like nature has an intelligence that we don't understand. And um, what has it got to teach us? What has this virus got to teach us? What is it got? What is it bringing? You know, I don't think about it as it's the enemy that must be defeated. It's a risk to humanity, and we start using war-like language, and and the world becomes very polarized. I definitely don't, you know, have all the answers to this. But I guess what I did when those um, first rounds of lockdown happens is I just went to a place of what I would call deep listening. So in the Māori world, I call that maramataka, which is listening to the environment. It's listening to the tide of the world. Um, and, and in Australian Indigenous culture, I've, I've learned that, you know, the, this word deep listening that's used here, that is something similar. And um, it's really interesting where, you know, this virus is just shining the spotlight on all the places of inequality and imbalance in our world, you know, um, aged care, what, you know, um, public housing, racial discrimination. The, the cracks in the walls were already there. And this just puts pressure on them. So, you know, they're going to fall apart now. And I think we're at a point in humanity where that individualistic and capitalist worldview is is actually in its extreme expression. You know, we are the extreme expression of that is narcissism. And and look at um, you know look at Donald Trump for example. You know he's the um, the president of the biggest kind of economy in the world. You know look at Jeff Bezos, where one person can be worth $20 billion. I mean, is that not the ultimate expression of individualistic capitalist culture? You know, that, that man single-handedly could change the trajectory of climate change. <laughs> you know, Amazon could buy the Amazon and replant it. <laughs> you know, um, and I've been reading um, Tyson Yonker Porter's book, Sand Talk. Okay. I know of this, I know of this book, yeah. Yeah, and, and I, I, I relate to so much of it. Um, in, like I, in, in, in the Māori world, it's, there's a lot of similarities in some of the things that he talks about. And one of the things he talks about in there is sort of rites of passage around, you know, as we come into adulthood, as we come through these liminal spaces. Mm-hmm. In collectivist cultures, one of the rites of passage um, to coming into adulthood is actually learning that you're not important. 
you're not important as an individual, but you're part of something which is really important and you have a role to play in that. And it's not about you as an individual. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if there's one thing that COVID is teaching us at the moment, it's that, isn't it? It's almost a rite of passage for humanity's narcissism right now, in a way, because we have to start thinking differently. And what's become apparently clear and, you know, the way you've expressed it is perfectly uh, demonstrates that the, the way that we see that we are not part of nature um, means that, like, for example, we're both here in Melbourne, we're locked into our apartment or our house, my apartment, 23 hours a day. Um, and as it's seen that going outside is sort of like a privilege. <laughs> and there were things where um, instead of you must go outside and be with nobody by yourself in nature, we're actually being fined if we are outside by ourselves in nature. And we're being told you must be inside your four walls with the internet and Netflix and, and everything else. And, and I get it. Like I, I get where it's coming from, fear, and I, you know, it's a, it's a scary world out there. But we are the world. We are, we, we are the rivers. We are the sunshine. We are the birds and the bees, and and um, we are the virus. We, we <laughs> literally are the virus. Viruses actually, you know, genetically change us and evolve within our bodies. Hmm. And what has brought about? You said that. In the last 20 years, you've, you've moved towards um, identifying more with your, your Maori culture and perhaps that's um, changed your, your worldview as well, which gives me hope that others can do exactly the same thing. I mean, what was that journey? What was the spark of that journey? And, and, and how can we, in our own way, um, how can we begin to think differently about the world around us? How can you point us in that direction from your own experience? Yeah, I think, I think for me, um, the key is coming into relationship with place, like my father. It's coming into a worldview, and whether you call it an, in, an Indigenous worldview or a collectivist worldview, and, and there's a whole conversation out there about how Indigenous thinking can, can change the world and save humanity from climate change and you know maybe holds a lot of the answers but for me it's that understanding of coming into a relationship with things from a different place you know if you have a relationship to the land and the resources in that land that that is your ancestor and you're in relationship with them you can't blow them up like Rio Tinto you know you can't exploit it in the same way and I mean you know, capitalism is based on this perpetual growth, but it's based on resources which are, um, you know, finite. You know, the natural resources in the, in the, on this planet are finite. So at some point, humanity was going to always get here. We were, you know, it was inevitable that we we're going to end up in this place where we ran out of resources. Um, you know, um, I think, I think as a, as a human race of homo sapiens, we have to start coming into relationship with place, with, with our sense of place, with each other, 
in a different way. Um, do I have such an intimate relationship with my environment that my environment would actually feel my absence if I left and moved out of it? You know, that kind of intimate interaction where, you know, the environment is actually also responding to me as much as I am to it. How can we live in a way that is that interrelational? And I think if humans are able to make that transition, the world would be a totally different place. You know, we, we would, our economic systems would be different, our relationships with each other, our relationships with the environment, with pollution. They all have to change. So for me, I think you solve all the other problems if you just come back to this place of what is my, how, you know, this relationship base of how am I relating to the world, to my family, to the people I interact with? Am I uplifting the mana of the people around me? You know, am I caring for the mori of the people and the place around me? You know, the park that I walk my dog in, you know, or the bit of bay that we go and swim in on hot days. And what is my actual relationship to those places? Do I ask permission when I go into those places? You know, do I go into them respectfully? Do I treat them as though they actually have a motive and an essence of their own and I'm a visitor there? And, and how do I interact with them in a way? Yeah, I, I'm constantly asking myself kind of those questions and I feel like my father did that in quite a natural way, um, which I definitely wish I did better at. Yeah, you know, I, I don't have a memory of him ever raising his voice at anyone or being in, you know, there was obviously conflict, but he, he just had such deep respect. You know, if there's one thing that I could change about humanity, it would be our relationship to respectfulness, respectfulness for each other, for people, for the miracle of life, respectfulness for this earth that, you know, we have a privilege of being a little nano blip in the great history of the universe to live upon. <laughs> yeah. And how it's it's very beautiful to 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 hear these words. Um, how did your father express himself, or how did he teach you these these lessons? Was it all through storytelling? Was it through this oral way of which you I assume know that you have very much um, this ability. You are a, a very um, passionate communicator um, is that something that you have developed from from your father's influence yeah I would like to think that <laughs> I would like to think that I have um, you know learned his ways um, I mean I, it's not something that I remember learning it's something that he he just was he he was in his being, you know, it's not, I don't even know if that's how, you, if it's something you can teach. I feel like I learned it just from being in his presence and because he was just present with, you know, where he was, he wasn't projecting himself always into the future. He wasn't, he was just always present. If he was in the garden, he was in the garden and he was with the garden. If he was fishing and with the ocean, he was in the ocean. If he was cooking in our kitchen, that's, you know, he did everything just with such a sense of respectfulness and presence and of equal relationship to that thing. Um, 
And I think I learned that just by osmosis in a way. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not really sure how to answer that question, other than that. No, you. And I was also in your. Um, I read, or I heard you talk about this concept in the Maori world of dignity and custodianship. I wonder if you yeah. can uh, can talk about that. Yeah, yeah. Kaitiakitanga is um, custodianship. Yeah, and. Um, the way we, yeah, manakitanga, manakitanga is the other word, um, where you care for things. So, I mean, in, in Te Ao Māori, you know, we have this concept that things have mana, people have mana. So what is mana? It, there's no English equivalent for that, but I kind of, I translate it as dignity, that every, every living thing has intrinsic dignity. Um, it's not earned. It's 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 it can't be lost. It's actually our birthright in being a living organism on this planet, and um, that's your mana. And so you can feed and grow that dignity, or you can do things that diminish it for yourself. You know, um, but manakitanga is live uplifting that. So interacting in the world um, that you're, you're, everything you do, that you're caring for and you're uplifting the dignity of others. Um, yeah, it's, it's, I think it's a beautiful Māori concept. It's, it's one of the, yeah, it's, it's really one of the treasures of, of te ao Māori manakitanga. And, and, and to live in, in, in that way of, and that's what I'd say my father was practising was his manakitanga. Yeah, the things aren't bad or good or, you know, right or wrong or bad or good. You know, they just, they are what they are. And, yeah, if what we can do is, is to care for them and to uplift them, we also uplift ourselves, you see. This is the other thing is when you uplift the manner of others, you're actually taking care of yourself. So this concept of self-care, oh, which is such a Melbourne thing, <laughs> Um, you know, I, I, we don't really have a concept of that in a collectivist culture because when you care for others, you, you automatically are cared for. You know, there is this individualization of we have to have self-care because everyone's on their own and they all have to look after each other. We have to have good boundaries and we have to have self-care. Yeah, um, yeah if, we're, if we're caring for others, we're automatically cared for. Yeah. I, I think that's, uh, I, I share with you that, uh, that view. And thank you again for, for, for these beautiful insights and for allowing me to feel free to ask you these questions as well because, uh, um, yeah, very personal, uh, very personal insights. So, and perhaps this is the most personal at all, so I hope you don't mind me asking, but you are a mother and... How does that relationship go with your own children in the sense that you bring them into the world? Um, how do they feel as far as their identity? How do they feel as far as being attached to the land and the people around them? And what's your role as a mother in, in attempting to teach them in the most 
sustainable and uh, appropriate way? That's the million-dollar question. I think that is the most challenging thing. Um, Yeah, I've been to lots of different places (laughs) with that. I, um, I think ultimately I think you can't pass on what you don't own yourself. So in passing on these values that are my values and came from my father and came from my grandmother, and um, I, I have to Im- Im- own them and embody them. Oh, I'm using the buzzword embodied. It's, you know, that's such a buzzword at the moment as well. But I actually have to own them and they have to really be authentically part of me. And then, I mean, I've, I've done my best to teach my children uh, respectfulness with and you know, I, I raise them in nature um, out in on the side of a mountain out in rural Victoria. We we didn't have a television. We still don't have a television. Um, you know, they were home homeschooled partly. Um, I would take a term off every year and pack the car. We'd go out and camp in the desert for a month or a couple of months. And um, they, they, they spent a lot of their life in nature. It's quite funny because right now and you know, now we're in Melbourne and they're all teenagers and, of course, all they want to do is eat McDonald's and, and watch YouTube and be normal. <laughs> We've always had a veggie garden, even in my tiny little world here. We keep bees. Um, we grow our veggies and, uh, yeah, but, you know, they're in this funny stage where they just, you know, they want to be teenagers and, you know, sometimes I kind of go, you know, wow, like how do I pass that Māori tanga on to them? Um, it's super challenging. They identify as Australian. Um, I mean, their father is a Kiwi, but they still, they don't really identify as Māori. They'll say, my mum's Māori, but they don't identify as being Māori um, because that's something that they have to come into their own relationship with themselves. Uh, last February, we all went back uh, to New Zealand and we had some time on our marae on it and we slept there and we had a big whanau hui there, which was really beautiful. I took my nephew with us and it's interesting though because in, in other ways, when my kids are there, they're so comfortable. They were so comfortable in that world as well. So even though they think, you know, that they're not very Maori, um, they're just probably not old enough necessarily to really understand what that means. But what I pass on to them, I guess, is only, um, yeah, what, what I am in, in my own presence with them, really. That's, I think that's what will stick. I think that's uh, the more grey I get in my beard, the more I understand that we're nothing other than an example. Um, in the yeah. words we speak, the actions we, we do, the way we live our lives. And I don't have any, any kids, but I can only go back on my own personal uh, journey of self-discovery and identity to do with um, my Italian upbringing. And it's all about time. It's all, it, 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 there can be the right time. You can't force anything on anybody, I think. Um, but you can teach and you can lead by example and you, you put that there for people to either be able to move into or, or to grow into. Um, you know, or not. It wasn't until I was in my sort of late 20s that I tried to discover my own Italian identity in a way. And it was, if it was forced upon me, I think I would be less inclined to actually 
um, want to discover it, I guess, because, you know, I just wanted to move into that space, that space naturally. Um, I did lie. I told you that would be the last question, but we just talked about time and I want to give you the opportunity as well, because I know that you've got a current um, exhibition that um, is in competition as well. And I will leave a link to, to that um, in, the, in the video and in the audio podcast. So this project, what can you tell us about time? Yeah, uh, thank you. Um, yeah, well, I, it was a work I developed while I was at FCAC last year doing the Emerging Cultural Leadership um, Program. And that was my own sort of personal journey of decolonizing my concepts of time. And it totally fits into our conversation, actually. It's totally, probably a nice way to wrap it all up. Um, so I think when it comes to cultural identities, yeah, I mean, they're very personal journeys and everybody has to work out that for themselves, you know, in this mashup world that we live in now. And I think it's really easy to understand cultural values uh, when we look at things like food or languages. It's really easy to see the differences. But when it comes to something like time, um, that's something that most people would probably say is a universal truth, you know. We don't necessarily automatically think that different cultures have different concepts of time. Like, that's crazy. <laughs> there's a clock, there's 60 seconds in a minute, you know, that's time. So I started to, you know, I was working as a paid creative on an, you know, working to deadlines as an hourly rate. That's, you know, how I pay my rent and feed my kids. And it's, a cra it's crazy. It's this crazy system of, you know, commodification of my time where I sell my time. My time is a commodity that I sell. Um, I need to be productive to make a profit. Um, you know, these are all these, like, capitalist values. And, and there's a morality that was attached to that. You know, um, idleness is a sin, you know. Um, wasting time, um, you know, not being productive. Like, we're so uncomfortable with not being productive and doing nothing. <laughs> and yet idleness is so important. It's really important to the creative process to have you know, just nothing time. I think there was a study done years ago where a whole group of really creative people interviewed, when did you get your best ideas? And they'd all say, you know, oh, in the shower or when I was doing nothing or, you know, Neil Finn used to write his songs as he napped in between sleep and awake. Um, you know, that's actually when the creative brain starts to kick in. So this concept of time is money and, you know, not enough time and you're on the clock. And so the work is... Um, around that commodification of time and that capitalist concept of time being a commodity. And, and it's a, um, at that point I, I describe it as it was kind of like it was a wallpaper that just painted my world. It was everywhere and I didn't feel like I could, there was no escaping from that. And in the artwork um, that commodification of time, clock time, is, is uh, represented as this big roll of wallpaper. So I started to kind of really look at Maori concepts of time and Maori mataka and, um, and, and started to see that in a lot of other cultures, you know, they don't necessarily run on the same understanding of time. Time is actually a cultural concept. It's not a universal truth. And in a lot of places, you know, we have these expressions, Fiji time, Bali time, you know, Kiri time, um, Maori time. Time is measured and valued really differently. So 
yeah, the artwork is about that. There's these eight spinning tops that I kind of talk about. I talk about body clock. I talk about um, all sorts, you know, uh, lunar calendars, stellar calendars, different ways of measuring time. And, and they kind of interrupt uh, this wallpaper of, of time as a commodity. And I, th I think that's one of the, you know, that's one of the really big things of colonial capitalism is, you know, there is this layer of a whole different value system on the Indigenous worlds, even the way we measure time, um, you know, the way we, we value oral versus written language. Yeah, the way we value an individualist worldview and a collectivist worldview, the way we, and, and all those things are kind of ranked as one is important and better and the other one is diminished. So, yeah, welcome to check out the work. It was shortlisted for the Incinerate Award Art for Social Change yeah, prize this year, which was amazing and really weird because it's all online and it's an interactive artwork and because of uh, COVID, we can the gallery can't open, and so it's all strange. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not the only thing strange in the world, so yeah, <laughs> this is where we're at. Oh, uh, yeah, as I said, I'll, I'll put a link to that so um, anybody can can jump on and and um, and vote. And it would be amazing if you won that award. Um, <laughs> just yeah, there's some awesome work in the exhibition. It's a great exhibition, and yeah, it's just such a privilege to to have work shortlisted there and there's some really amazing work in that brilliant oh thank you thank you so much again for the for the chat and uh um yeah i'm happy that this very humble platform can 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 give uh give your words and inspiration you know um more of a chance to to get out there and hopefully touch uh touch a lot of people so thank you very much good luck for the uh for that award and uh we're less than five kilometers away but hopefully we can catch each other meet in person once these uh these lockdowns are yeah, i would love that david thank All you right. so much for your time that's uh, a pleasure patience <laughs> thanks hiniani okay bye Bye. many thanks for listening if you enjoyed this episode review it with five stars on apple podcasts or wherever you like to listen and subscribe to make sure you don't miss an episode and go to aliminalspace.earth to access all episodes available as both video and audio podcasts. But for now, many thanks again, and see you next time in Aliminal Space. Mm -hmm.